Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 80. And make sure that you are buckled in tight because my guest this week is Mike Edison, and I am going to suggest that you might want to play this one at half speed. You'll see what I mean when we get there. We'll get there in just a second. A few things I want to get to before that. First and foremost, I want to make mention of the recent passing, of course, that most of us have heard by now, but the recent passing earlier this month, actually late July, July 24th, of Adrian Street, the Welsh wrestling superstar who became a sensation during the territorial era, both first in the United Kingdom, and then in North America in the 1970s and 1980s. Adrian Street, it goes without saying, crafted a wrestling persona, which was one of the most influential that wrestling had ever seen. Subversive, transgressive, androgynous, playing with gender roles, playing with gender stereotypes in ways that would even be difficult to pull off today, let alone 40, 50 years ago, and the man did it. And without him, we wouldn't have seen characters, of course, like adorable Adrian Adonis, as people have said, Goldust, Billy and Chuck, many other wrestling characters like that. Of course, we know that Adrian built a lot of what he created on previous work of people like Gorgeous George, who were doing that in the past. But Adrian Street really did it on a whole other level, a much more explicit level, especially for the time, playing on sexual hangups, playing on sexual insecurities. And he made himself into an icon. And not only that, but he and his wife, Miss Linda, were known in the industry for creating wrestling gear for generations of performers over the past 40 years. So a major loss to the pro wrestling industry and to the art of professional wrestling. Adrian Street dead at the age of 82. We remember him here at Shut Up and Wrestle, and our thoughts and prayers at this time are with his family and friends. I'd also like to make mention of the New England Fan Fest, which took place recently. I had a great time. It was wonderful meeting with fans, meeting with readers, you know, people who read my books, people who listen to my podcast. What a joy that is for me to connect with the public, because very often, you know, I'm sitting here in my house recording these things and writing my articles and sending them off, and you never really know who's out there reading and listening. But when you go out to these events and these book signings and things, you get to meet those people. So that is always a blast. I want to thank everybody at the New England Fan Fest for hosting me there. I do intend to be back next year, but in the meantime, 
I'm also planning to go to the third annual International Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame in Albany, New York. It's the last weekend of the month, last weekend of August at the MVP Arena. I will be there the whole weekend, but specifically on the actual day of the inductions, which is Saturday, August 26th, I'll be in the merchandise room selling and signing copies of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. So come on by and say hello if you happen to be attending. It's the third annual year, and I'm happy to be helping out the IPWHF with all the good stuff that they do. So maybe I'll see you there. Hope to do that. In the meantime, as I said, buckle in tight because you are in store for a thrill ride. If you do not know Maniac Mike Edison, you are about to become well acquainted with him. Wrestling Magazine legend, editor of Wrestling's main event, among many other accolades and very, very unusual achievements, which I will be describing in just a moment. Mike is also somebody who is totally instrumental and essential to the development of my career as a wrestling media professional, if you can call it that. So here's a great conversation just between some old friends and two crazed lovers of the business and art of professional wrestling. I hope you will enjoy it, and I will take you to it right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to have somebody on the show that I, it's been my privilege to know for, oh, about 10 years now, and and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, Somebody who actually, in in a weird kind of circumventing kind of way, has had a... a, an effect on kickstarting my career writing about wrestling again. We'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, where do I begin with Mike Edison? The, one of the most varied, eclectic people I've ever had on this show. Um, former editor and publisher of High Times Magazine. Former editor-in-chief of Screw. High-brow stuff. Uh, a mu- musician. A man who's written about rock music. He's written about classical music. He He's passionate about actually two things that I'm very passionate about, classical music and pro wrestling, which I think is amazing. (laughs) He's the author of several books, including I Have Fun Everywhere I Go, which is an amazing book. Um, You Are a Complete Disappointment, which is a memoir with that title, if you could believe it. Um, Dirty, Dirty, Dirty. And his most recent book, Sympathy for the Drummer, Why Charlie Watts Matters. Um, I met him years ago, as I said, we'll talk about it, through the Kevin Geeks Out kind of pop culture multimedia show, that we used to do about pro wrestling, which wound up leading to me writing pro wrestling FAQ. But and also for our purposes, I buried the lead here. I have to mention back in the 80s, this man, one of his first gigs, he was an editor on wrestling's main event magazine, that hallowed publication that all of us listening to this show, I know, remember and love. I'm talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Mike Edison. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Ron, you are too kind. You are too kind. And I thought, yes, you're talking about all that highbrow entertainment. I was the editor and publisher of High Times and uh, I ran Screw for a while. And saying, man, what happened to the, the wrestling magazine? My my beautiful kayfabe newsstand wrestling magazine, uh, of which I edited, of which I was the heel editor, I'm proud to say. Yes. For, uh, I decimated the the Hulk Hogan loving baby face that ran the rag <laughs> the loser leaves town match. And I took over in our office on the 108th floor of the Empire State Building. 
Oh, that's right. That's right. You were you were in the Empire State Building, weren't you? That's right. And I like to think we're a little bit ahead of our time, kind of kayfabing this battle between editors getting in the ring, uh, which at the time met with kind of a mixed reception. Like, <laughs> you know, it was a little too far out for the uh, kayfabe crowd, especially in the Hulk Hogan era, to do something that weird for editors to be battling, which we photographed. You know, we that's met at Gleason's gym and I, you know, <laughs> you know, I you know, I ripped his forehead open. Very influenced by uh, your hero and mine, the Sheik. <laughs> yes, and and um, and I want to say too on that whole thing of the editors fighting each other. It's <laughs> funny to me because I mean, you probably know this, but over at the After Mags, they had a whole thing going on in their office of the you know Bill After was like the office wrestling champion and all this. He still got the belt, the cardboard <laughs> belt. However, the funny thing is they never made it public. They never made it part of the magazine. You guys made it part of the magazine well this is what happens when you let like film school dropouts punk rockers and you know art damaged weirdos run your wrestling magazine uh what happened was the guy i knew that uh sort of got an internship there he was in, you know we were uh, going to nyu at the time and instead of shooting for an internship at the village voice or new york magazine or you know one of these kind of yuppie bougie you know kind of liberal high-priced internships he went for a wrestling magazine. We're wrestling fans. We were, we were fans, you know. Yeah. And he got this gig, and he started writing stuff. And he said, "Hey, Mike, you should be writing for us." We knew we were all working for the school paper, the NYU paper. It's funny if you look at the masthead of the NYU paper that year. Uh, one guy became the editor of Spin Magazine. Another guy became a very highly regarded film critic. Um, another guy uh, that I'm talking about, you know, ran this wrestling magazine. Went on to uh, a pretty big gig at Sirius Radio, and I've got my own career. Everybody on there went on to do something in media in a pretty large way. Yeah, uh, it was kind of a real murderer's row, that group. Anyway, we ended up at the wrestling magazine. I started writing stuff, and there was no oversight. There was no supervision. And we weren't as tight in the world as Bill Apter and that group who we really looked up to. We really admired those guys because Pro Wrestling Illustrated was was it. It might as well have been Sports Illustrated, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that being said, this was the creative writing workshop. So the kayfabe was like, write what you want. So, you know, here I am on a plane, you know, with Fred Blassie going to a secret Soviet training camp, you know, <laughs> you know, to to learn, you know, you know, techniques you know, with Nikolai Volkov and help train the whatever it was. We're on a plane, we're with Ric Flair having lunch at the four seasons, <laughs> you know, and on and on and on and on. Um we did a pretty crazy thing of uh, continuity writing, I guess you would call it, which was way ahead for a magazine. It was, we might as well have been writing the TV show with Kevin Sullivan battling Satan. And I guess he, I guess he he uh, turned babyface at the end of this. But it went over three episodes of the magazine. It was time to match championship wrestling from Florida at the time. I mean, it was it was it was like it was like racketeering. Is what it was. <laughs> it was a real conspiracy. Um, and we went, you know, we had this photo shot on the beach in Florida, and we released it to coincide with the TV show. And uh, and that's kind of nuts, right? I mean, yeah. Did you get every known rule? <laughs> Did you get any kind of like feedback, pushback, whatever from the promotions, from the wrestlers? Like either A, what the hell are you guys doing? Or B, this is awesome. You know, we want to be a part of it. Like anything at all? Uh, Only when the editors got in the ring and I destroyed (laughs) that Hulk Hulkamaniac babyface, you know, editor who was running running the rag, running to the ground with his flag waving and stay in school and don't do drugs, you know, you know, (laughs) not for me. Um. But no, uh, the thing was, you know, when we started getting into it, it was right around the time uh, 
Vince had pushed out the wrestling magazines from covering WWF, as it was then. Uh, he had starting his own magazine, and there's no access. But everybody else, uh, like the people at Crockett, you know, and all the other smaller promotions liked us because, uh, you know, we kind of marked for them, to be very honest. You know, if someone called up and wanted to be in, in the magazine, I mean, we did whatever we could. I became kind of friends with Adrian Street and uh, some people in Texas and Florida who wanted to work with us. And I liked being around it. So sure. I mean, they were all great workers. Oh my God. You know, there was so much talent down there, but yeah, I marked for Kevin Sullivan. You know, of course I did. Don't forget, I was 22 years old. It was a much different world. I had just dropped out of college for the first time. This is my gig and I'm running with it. Like, you know, I'm literally you know, 22 years old. I'm in the office of the Empire State Building facing South. Amazing. <laughs> that's that's the way you want to face. See, it's amazing to me. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's because I was just the sellout that was in Stanford writing for WWF magazine. But the funny thing is, I tell people this, and it's so true. Like, we were we were working for Vince McMahon. We were in the in like the inner sanctum, right? But all of us were just like waxing this philosophical about the after magazines and like the Napolitano magazines and things. That's what we were trying, at least the crew I was a part of, that's what we were trying to be, even though we were here writing, you know, for the most high profile company. And we had all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of circulation. And we're thinking, oh, God, if only I was writing for wrestling's main event or, you know, wrestling world or wrestling. eye, like that's where our heads were at. Well, you know, pro wrestling illustrated was was the thing and bill after of course had these great relationships with everyone and when they wanted to do you know a cover shoot people came to their office mm-hmm. you know and they they had all this access they knew everybody they were inside you know, I don't think they were perceived as marks. Maybe we were a little bit. We were kids, but, you know, George Napolitano was kind of running main event until he wasn't. The guy that owned main event was a scumbag. I mean, he, he was a perfect sleazy magazine guy. He ran this and a video games magazine that did quite well for him. And this uh, men's health knockoff, I can't remember what it's called, you know, um, you know, it was a bunch of like half naked, you know, men, you know, um, and I don't know who bought that, uh, but it was successful, you know, I do. <laughs> um, yeah, I suspect you bought it. The same people who bought uh, Playgirl, meaning you know, there you go, women who wanted to see men, right? Bret Hart was on to that years ago. Bret Hart, knew. so uh, you know, we had no supervision, we had no budget. I got paid next to nothing. I was shooting pictures from the stands at you know, I shot the first WrestleMania from the stands, I scalped a ticket and shot it from the 20th row or whatever, as close as I could get. Uh, and those were good pictures. I'm very proud of the picture I took of Liberace in the ring with the Rockets. That was a That's highlight great. of my career. That's great. And there's just something about, uh, yeah, go on, Mike. Sorry. I was going to say, but also I was taking the photos. I mean, I went to film school. I was good with the camera. And, you know, when someone said, hey, we want you to come to Texas and cover, you know, the Southwest Territory, and they picked up the plane ticket because my office, they weren't paying for anything. You know, at some point they stopped paying me and we got into a pretty big fight that almost got into a, a legit, you know, physical altercation in the office, which which is a terrible thing. You know, um, I mean, literally, I was about to punch out my boss until he wrote me a check. Uh, it was bad because he wasn't paying people. I, I assume that's what happened with George Napolitano. He just said I had enough of this bullshit. Probably, you know, yeah. Like George, who'd been in the business for a long time and was respected and did a great job and, um, you know, had good relationships with uh you know, our you know our competitors too. Him and knew each other. I mean, everybody knew everybody. Yeah, we, you, we were just sort of these crazy kind of outlaws. Though. Right. I was going to say that you guys were like the outlaw wrestling of wrestling magazines, or like the punk rock of wrestling magazines. Yeah. That, that was like the rep, I think, of wrestling's main event. If you saw my the editorials I wrote and I call them the heart punch. Um, 
you know, uh, which was named after Stan Stasiak's heart punch, not Ox Baker's heart punch, just to okay. set the record straight because I got that gets asked a lot. Uh, both very admirable men, but just so you know, that's where I got it from. Um, yeah, Stan we were, was first. Stan was first. We, we were em- embracing, you know, rule breaking. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, the bad guys, the heels were called rule breakers pretty often back then as well, and that's what we consider ourselves rule breakers. Um, and you know, I liked it. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, and, and I'm a fan. I don't, you know, we always talk about this, you know, with the WWE, they they don't want to hire fans because I think fans are marks, but right. you need fans to write it, you need people who love the thing. It's a catch 22, you cannot beat. You don't want to hire someone from outside who doesn't understand and love the art and science and sport and spectacle of professional wrestling. So, yeah, we're all marks. I mean, come on, these guys got to get over themselves. You don't think Triple H is marking for himself? Of course he is. Oh, I think <laughs> he he he's the king of all of all marks that broke that made it in the business. I mean, he's he's like their patron saint at this point, you know. Well, you know, you, you know, that wouldn't be uh, mankind. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, Tony Khan. I mean, there's a lot of candidates for that role, but um, the the crazy thing is, you're talking about the whole like you kind of have to be a mark in a way. You have to be a fan, you know. When I was there, they were in the office there at WWE. There were a lot of fans on the editorial team. There were a lot of us that we kind of walked that line. We were professionals. We had been writers before or art directors, whatever it was. We just happened to be big fans. Before us, there was a lot of people on that were that were still kind of inside people that were doing the magazine, like people like Dennis Brent or Kevin Kelly. Uh, I mean, Linda McMahon was the original director of the division. I mean, it was like it was very inside. But then you had people like Keith Greenberg, who I know is our mutual friend, who always resisted the lore of going to the office full time. He remained a freelancer, but he was like the the mark in residence before we all got there and took over and made it almost like a, a mark magazine. You know, well, Keith Greenberg's the greatest, you know, yes, I mean, he is. He's, he's a wonderful writer. And I've worked with him on, on a bunch of books as well. Not wrestling related. I worked as the editor of his John Lennon book and a book about James Dean. I worked uh on with him he i mean and keith and he wrote of course or edited anyway the ww encyclopedia of professional wrestling i mean i always say he's the guy who wrote the book on professional wrestling and he's the biggest mark i ever met you know he goes to he flies to every wrestlemania i mean still you know and you know and sits uh with his other mark friends from germany and russia and israel in in the foreign press box you know (laughs) but of course he loves every second we text each other like like schoolgirls during during the match of course you know i think listen i think you have to be a mark i think and this not just about professional wrestling but for a lot of things i mean we're, we're smart enough to know the difference all right but being a fan and buying into the whole illusion than the whole thing is very important. I mean, it's important as a movie fan. If you want to make movies, you know, uh, you know, you know what Quentin Tarantino did is the work of a mark. He's a guy who loves movies. That's you know, a good, that's a good comparison. Yeah. This concept of movies, that's movies with a capital M, it, you know, and then yes, cinema drifts into it to be a rock and roll fan, to be a rock and roll musician. You got to be a mark. You know, if you want to be a great rock and roll drummer, I, which is one of my goals, has been in my life, I'm, I, I mark for The Who and Led Zeppelin and The Rolling Stones. And of course I do. I mean, I, I mean, it's not really that because I can be honest. I did just write a book about The Rolling Stones and I'm the first guy to tell you they made some really shitty records. <laughs> you know, you know, that's the difference between my book about Charlie Watts and the official Charlie Watts book, which came out after he died. My book was written before he died. Yeah. That's important to notice. I wrote it because I wanted to write it, not because... It was an op- you know, opportunity. I wasn't making, you know, trying to make money off of the guy's death. I truly, truly love the Rolling Stones, and I'm baffled by the idiosyncrasies of his drumming. Um, but I don't owe the Rolling Stones anything. I don't work for them. 
you know? So Mick kind of takes it on the chin in my book. And I can tell you the truth where when you read the book, that was the official version after Charlie Watts died, which not incidentally, I think is kind of cheeky because I already had written the book and, you know, there was proof of concept. It was kind of a popular book, but according to that book, you know, they may, may have made a couple of missteps, but they never put out a bad record, which is utter garbage. Right. I mean, come on. Right. Right. Well, yeah. And that, you know, I'm glad you're talking, you're mentioning that because it's, the whole idea of what you're saying of, of writing that book that you did about Charlie Watts and doing it on your own and doing it your way. And it's your book and your opinion is going to be in there. Uh, that my, what I've run up against sometimes with the wrestling books is there's not because so many books in so many wrestling books are autobiographies that are often cash grabs by the wrestlers and blah, 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 that there's not as much of an understanding of, that whole idea of writing your own independent book on the subject, you know, like when I wrote the book about the Sheik, Blood and Fire, the thing I had to hear a lot about was why isn't the family involved? Why isn't the family involved? This is going to be, you know, what's your agenda here? And blah, blah. my agenda here is to write a book about the Sheik. If I wrote a book about Richard Nixon, I don't have to get his family to sign off on the book. You, you know what well, I mean? Wrestlers and you know workers in the in this business have a very strange attitude about this business, both being protected. Yes. What's your agenda? It's the it's the sheik, you know, the right. most dangerous man who ever lived. What else do I need to tell you? I'm not. Why do you need the cooperation? What's my agenda? What was my agenda writing about the Rolling Stones? My agenda is to tell the, to tell the truth. My responsibility is to the audience. There you That's go. it. To the reader. Yeah. That's my responsibility. I don't owe, you know, um, the, the subject anything except to be truthful. And I wouldn't have chosen the subject if I weren't passionate about it. You know, and that's true with any anything that I write. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm a musician and I'm a singer. I don't sing songs that I don't feel passionate about, you know, because that's how I can invest myself in the role of singing. Singing is acting, by the way. You know, Bob oh, Dylan yes. first one to tell you that. Mick Jagger will tell you that. Frank Sinatra will tell you that. You, you're projecting something that is beyond yourself. I mean, there's certainly, it's, it begins in my heart, you know, but you're going beyond that. You know, otherwise I would do it at home, you know, without pushing the, the record button. Yeah, and uh, I agree with you about the whole singing <laughs> is acting thing. And we're saying this and, to one. Yeah, go on. Yeah, and the responsibility is to the audience, ultimately. Um, people, or, or this misidea that, like, there's going to be, a, I mean, you know, a million dollars. I know you probably bought yourself a couple Lamborghinis. Uh, you're paying cash for your kids' tuition now, right? Bought yourself a new house in Monte Carlo. Your wife's, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like in Goodfellas, you know, it's a sedan. It's a new car. You know, she loves it. <laughs> You know, bring it back bring it back yeah yeah exactly I, I mean how much money do you think people think they're going to make from writing unless maybe you're rick flair with keith greenberg standing behind you writing that book because you're rick flair right money is truly involved in writing even what i would consider a successful book about professional wrestling well sometimes i'll when i have run into people who put their hands out or people that will only talk to me for money or this or that and my answer has to be no in most cases, in all cases. I don't want to say most to give anybody any hope in all cases. <laughs> and the reason is, you know, look, I'm I tell them I'm barely making anything off this. I mean, I get people that will ask for more than I'm making to write the book. And I'm like, how can you what do you think I'm getting? You think I'm getting rich on this? I mean, there's no, because... you know, maybe if you're I understand if you're making a feature film and everybody's raking in millions and you want to get the family involved or people involved. I get that. But for a book, the overhead is very, very small. And you, <laughs> you have to keep it that way, you know? Otherwise, there's no book. There's no, there's, no, there's no budget for this. I mean, if the if books about the chic were like, you know, huge money makers, someone would have done it a long time ago. This is I a, wish. This, this is an act of love. I get it, man. 
Yes. I mean, maybe when Hulk Hogan writes his book, you know, about about uh, you know, how his sex tape is six seconds long and how he took down Gawker, maybe that'll sell a couple copies, you know. Um, but otherwise, listen, let's be honest, no one cares about professional wrestling except professional wrestling fans. That is is a thing. By the way, you can't sell a book about jazz or classical music either because there just aren't enough fans to support it and even among those fans how many of them read i'm willing to bet proportionally more classical music fans actually read books than wrestling fans um but you know you write a book about i wrote a book about charlie watts try to find drummers who read and write you know know, hopefully the subject goes beyond you know just you know the rock and roll drummer and beyond the rock and roll band but you know but in the company that I used to work for, they'd say, don't do a book about this punk rock band because they're too small. Um, let's do a book about U2 instead. But most U2 fans don't buy books. They just don't, you know. But if everybody that follows my punk rock band buys a book, you'll sell more copies of it than doing a book about a topic that there's already a million books about that their fan base doesn't really read, you know, versus something very niche, you know, that really hits its target because it's better, you know, to, to sell 10,000 books than no books at all, even if the subject is... Small. I mean, 10,000 books, someone's going to get so make some money, you know? Yeah. Well, the problem that I found <laughs> is with wrestling is, you know, people always said the, the maxim was always wrestling fans don't read. And I think what I discovered and what's been discovered ever since Mick Foley, you know, basically blew the doors off is wrestling fans will read, but they will only really read books that are about specific wrestlers like they'll they they, you know personality driven books is what sells and you know i learned that because i wanted to talk about this because the book that i you know a book i put my heart into i really truly did was pro wrestling faq and the problem and and that book would not have happened if it weren't for you and i want to i want to i'll tell a short story about that because um you know the i had gone away from wrestling when i worked for wwe i had I had a meteoric downfall that would have made Bruno San Martino, Hulk Hogan, <laughs> Bret Hart, CM Punk, and the rest of them proud. And I was very bitter. I didn't want to talk about the business. I didn't want to watch wrestling. You know, I started to get back into it because of my kids. But then it was really this project. Um, now I had met you I'd, uh, uh, through Kevin Geeks Out, which was thanks to Kevin Marr, this uh, show that he's still doing, by the way, this pop culture series that he does. And we did a couple about pro wrestling and we were both on at the same time. And I got to know you there. And I know if it, correct me if I'm wrong on the, on the timeline and the story of this, I know you were working for Hal Leonard, the publisher you were, they were doing this FAQ series. They wanted to do one on pro wrestling or WWE, whatever the case may be. And I think that they wanted, they, they pitched it to you. I think if I understand this right. And you were kind of like, I can't do this book for whatever reason, but I know somebody who can, and you pointed them in my direction. And that the reason it's important to me is that book really kickstarted my getting back into writing about wrestling and leading to everything that I've done since. So even though, as I started with the story, the book didn't set the world on fire in terms of sales because it wasn't personality driven. Um, it's the book that really got me back on this path that I'm on right now. Uh, you're almost right. And thank you very, very much for saying all of that. And I feel good about that. Um, it's always nice to hear when, um, I, I sign up an author and, and get a book done and someone says, Hey, you know, that became my calling card for a very successful career, you know, after me, <laughs> um, that I mean, it means a lot to me because, you know, 
making that phone call is, is the best thing you can do from my end, you know? Um, I was the editor of, uh, so Hal Leonard owned Backbeat, um, which is the imprint uh, that did a lot of these, a lot of mostly music books. Yeah. Um, they were doing the FAQ series and expanding it. We had done, you know, the FAQ book on a million kinds of, you know, rock bands and, and and rock genres and stuff. And they wanted to expand it to more pop culture things. We ended up doing a book about the FAQ on Star, the Star Trek FAQ. Yeah. I think it's Star Wars one too, the Doctor Who FAQ for real nerds um, and professional wrestling. And um, I wasn't running the series, but I worked in the office. I said, you know, I'm not going to do this, but I know I know who can. And that's always a good thing. Hey, listen, Bri, you know, there's nothing in this world that's more than two phone calls away. That's my, that's my, that's how I get through life. I can get someone whacked in two phone calls. You know, because if I don't know somebody, I know a guy who knows somebody. <laughs> you know, that's the way it always is. Give me, give, yeah. you know, give me a payphone and, and a couple dimes, and I'll fill up the room with you know hookers, blow arms, you know, whatever you need. <laughs> you know, but, two phone calls, I can do it. But I don't think, and I don't think I ever had a chance to talk to you about this. But there's there's more to that. There's more to the connection because all right. So to give people an idea of what Kevin Geeks Out is and was, and it was Kevin Geeks Out about wrestling. It was it's a show where basically clips are shown, you know, so in the wrestling case, it would be like clips of old wrestling and each presenter would have a theme of what they were going to do. And so I did my first one I did was about my experience working for WWE. It was called Seven Years in the Tower. And my and I did a couple of other ones and Mike did the ones that he did just blew me away because he did he, he did one about Andy. Cal I'm saying he I'm talking about you in the third person. Why? I don't know. But you did you did one about Andy Kaufman, which was amazing, where you talked about him. Basically, the question is Andy Kaufman, the greatest pro wrestler of all time. And you backed it up based on what he did. But you also did uh, you, you included and this is 10 years ago. My memory's fuzzy, but you your band did a cover of the song. I like to hurt people, which the original version of that is the theme song of this podcast. And which I uh, and my connection, of course, was that was the title song of the fake documentary about the Sheik. And I had already been fascinated by the Sheik for years from when I was a kid, just from wrestling magazines and things. And just, I started thinking about the Sheik again, partly because of those shows we were doing. And I know you were a huge fan of the Sheik and you were obsessed with the Sheik. And then I started thinking like, oh man, no one's ever written a book about the Sheik. And it started pointing me in the direction of writing a book about the Sheik. I mean, you were, you, you even had an influence on that. So thank you. Well, that's good. I love, first of all, I love, love, love the Sheik. Uh, I love the Sheik imagery. You know, I love the Iron Sheik. I once said, how many nights did I, you know, almost get my ass kicked, you know, by a bunch of flag-waving Americans because I was rooting for the Iron Sheik to oh, man. Hogan, that giant yellow doofus's ass across the ring. You know, <laughs> here I am rooting for the for the heels, you know, at, you know, at the worst possible time you could. Um, yes. I love the Sheik. I love the Sheik imagery. I had a band for a while called the New York Sheiks where we wore the kafias and the headdresses and after 9-11, that kind of went out of vogue pretty, pretty, pretty quick. <laughs> it turned into a bad gimmick, right? That was not happening. So that, we dropped that. Real fast. Heat. Yeah, you but don't want came, that go away heat. But it came from the Sheik and Adan al and, and 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 the Iron Sheik. And also the Grand Wizard had the turban and Abdullah mm -hmm. Farouk had the fez. So there's this thing. And I love Elvis as the Sheik. And I love Rudolph Valentino and the Sheik itself. You know, condoms are called Sheiks, right? Did you ever, did you ever know that? Um I've heard, yeah, yeah. It's just like kind of pimp slang, you know. Put you know, put a chic on it because and there's a brand called Sheiks too. There's a, there's a brand of pro called Sheiks because Sheiks were the Sheik was a symbol of virility. 
Yes. I wrote about that in the book because now <laughs> because of, you know, post 9-11 and Iran hostage and the Iron Sheik, when we think about these wrestling sheiks, we think of it as Islamophobia or just the, the foreign menace. But originally it was like a romanticized, exoticized character you know because of Ruta valentino and everything else right but the sheik is, is the the evil oil sheik is, is a great right. yes you know yeah he of course the iron he, sheik is all he's thing. gonna it was the evil oil sheik who was gonna like steal your woman you know because he was so he had such an irresistible allure that he was gonna take your women away and 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 all this kind of thing that's even what the song the sheik of araby is about right. which is where the sheik got his name Let's not forget King Tut and Batman. It was kind of a clod, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, he was a villain. Hey, listen, you got to start playing my version of I Like to Hurt People on your show. Okay, get hip. All right. Welcome to the 21st century, my friend. All right. <laughs> uh, that was like the very, very first song my band, the Empire, the Empire, the Edison Rocket Train, uh, recorded. It's kind of funny because it's it's a little bit more punk than we were. We're kind of a, we're definitely kind of a aggressive, but. Bam, but more a blues 60s garage thing with gospel overtones. I like to I like gospel music a lot. Now I'm really focused more on doing gospel music. It's to compare it to anything more like Nick Cave or Dr. John or maybe Tom Waits or something like, like this. But um, at the beginning, it was very, very, everything was going at 110 miles an hour and very yes. loud. But someone asked us to do a wrestling song for a fanzine, and it came out on a seven-inch vinyl. Uh, and I still have some. And if anyone wants to get in touch with me, we can work something out, I'm sure. Uh, I'm easy to get in touch with, by the way, MikeEdison.com. And if you click contact, I'll get the message. I do have some seven inches of I Like to Hurt People uh, lying around. But that's how that, that came about, because I just loved this sheet because he threw fireballs okay you know and anybody who says yeah but it's not real i just say I th he throws fireballs he metabolizes fireballs like what part about you know it's exactly. I think the undertaker is really the best example you know and that yes. was one of the things i did at kevin's uh kevin mayor's thing mars thing did, yeah the undertaker uh, a piece called turn me on dead man it's about the greatest gimmicks of all time I'd read somewhere that Ric Flair said The Undertaker was the greatest gimmick of all time. He's a walking dead man. And you would tell someone, yeah, he's a zombie. He's a walking dead man. They'd say, well, you know, it's not real. And I'm like, well, which part about like he's a zombie don't you get? Or like how dumb, you know, I mean, like you think we all are. It's not important. You're asking the wrong question. You know what else isn't real? Star Wars. You know what else isn't real? Romeo and Juliet. You know, <laughs> you know what else is the ending predetermined? King Lear. You know, <laughs> well, I, the, you know, the, the Death Star, you know, I mean, these, you know, pornography, whatever. These things aren't real. The Undertaker is you know? great, though, because the Undertaker like is is basically wrestling saying, you know what? we're not even trying to make you believe this is real. We just want to have fun with this. And we don't actually think that if, especially if you're over 12 years old, that you think this guy is really a zombie. And you know what? We don't care if you believe or not that he's actually a zombie. I want to uh, point people towards the, it's a spoken word piece. It's on YouTube. It's called Turn Me On Dead Man, The Undertaker. And if you search Mike Edison, you'll find it. And it's about seven minutes long. And through this discussion of the undertaker, I, I do kind of do a laundry list of the, some of the great gimmicks of all time that I'm personally missing right now, like an accountant, you know, <laughs> and, you know and he says, I'm going to audit you. I mean, how great is that? I, I miss that. The you great know? miss opportunity, the missed opportunity. I like the clown, the... you know, I, I wasn't, you know, <laughs> I like these goofy gimmicks that defy you know any any sense of reality everyone doesn't have to be be a bodybuilder you know and i miss i also miss just all legit tough guys people with two names you know yeah you know, you yeah. know i'm not like hi i'm titanic and i'm you know hurricane and you know you know i'm jawbreaker it's like hi i'm roddy piper i'm harley race 
I mean, Harley Race, what an unlikely name for a superstar. Yeah, you know, it's a, and, and his real name. Harley Race was the man's real <laughs> yeah. name. As impossible as that is to believe, it, it was. But yeah, I always thought the great missed opportunity was the tag team of Death and Taxes, Undertaker and IRS. <laughs> Why they never did that, I don't know. That would have been great. Fantastic. Death and IRS, Erwin R. Scheister. That's a, you know, I missed that when it's funny. I remember, I forget. But don't you think that they overdid it a little bit in that era where it was like every wrestler, every wrestler had to have another job besides being a wrestler. You know, you know what I mean? Well, like, is yes, wrestling you know, not paying see, enough? I wish there was an ice cream man or maybe a guy who makes sandwiches or something. You know? um, uh, I mean, I, yeah, there was some of it was over. It was a little bit too cartoony. I mean, you know, I just knew like, you know, when big boss man, you know, I said, you know, Vince is up in his room, you know, getting stoned listening to old blues records. And he came up with this idea called big boss man, you know, because he was listening to the song or, and then at the same time, he had little, the little red rooster. What was, what was that? The, the rooster? red rooster. Well, right? the honky tonk man. also a blues song. Little red, little Red Rooster. These are both like blues songs of the fifties. So that's Vince. You know, he's up there listening to records, and he comes back to work and says, "This is what's going to happen." And the Honky Tonk Man was the there was the I movie, the, the Honky Tonk Man. Man. You know, thank you know, thank God he's like he was really charismatic, you know, and can put it over that gimmick and knew how to do it. And Jimmy Hart, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, his story is a great story too. How he got into wrestling, yes. Um, but it was fun. It was entertaining, and, and you know, that's when I. I drift from wrestling because when it stops being funny, I kind of stop watching. You know, I love spectacle. I love to watch Charlotte Flair make her entrance on the helicopter. Yes. I really, but I need it to be funny too. You know, I need the, the announcers to be funny. I need there to be some goofiness. I need for the kayfabe to reach a point of absurdity. Yes. I think what, what wrestling is missing now in terms of the announcers is we don't have what was great about wrestling is you had the juxtaposition of the most ridiculous stuff that you'd see happening in the ring or around the ring. And the guy calling it or the guy holding the ma- the mic would be like this, the most stuffy, middle-aged kind of like guy that you could you could picture him almost calling any other sport. And here he is calling wrestling and just sort of being the moral compass of everything, like a Gordon Soley or a Mean Gene Oakland or, you know, people like that is 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 gone that you don't really have the the announcers are all trying to be cool now you know right well i wouldn't mean she wasn't he like a announcer like a local radio guy before he got into wrestling he didn't come from yes. within business he came in because he had a voice or and- lance russell you know it's people like that we we need oh he's so know. square so yes square. I, I can't believe you know, and the outrage even even early vince i loved early vince in his oversized blazer when he was w- trying to be howard wwf batch yeah. you know and you know, and he'd be interviewing, you, you know, the Iron Sheik, or it'd be earlier, 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 Morocco, magnificent Morocco, or or Lou Albano, or whomever, and he'd make him his face like he smelled poop because it was a bad guy. Like, and Vince would just be terrified, or also, you know, when anybody said anything offensive, you know, he, he Vince would just look, look so hor- horrified. The yeah. arrogance, the arrogance of this man! I can't believe he did this. This is, this is, you know, you know, he was outraged. He was outraged. He, he perfected that look of disgust, you know, oh, rolling yes. his eyes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like he just stepped in poop. It's fantastic. Now, Vince, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, Vince is a tough, tough one because, as you know, I'm early on to like the, the Vince's God movement, which I began with my fanzine, uh, the foreign object. I started like in 1982, right before I got this gig at this wrestling magazine. It was on. Uh, photocopy paper, no computers, everything was cut and pasted and typed on a typewriter. And it was another one of these things about like having dinner with Fred Blassie, you know, at the Four Seasons and all this stuff. But, you know, it was a time when Vincent started doing the, the talk show. Yeah. Right? You know, TNT. And- TNT and having wrestlers on like doing cooking demonstrations or, <laughs> you, know, you know, or you know, or whatever it was. It was so out of control. It was so weird that like, wow, he really sees the possibilities of this. 
and he's taking this art form to a level of performance art that has not been imagined before. And no wonder everybody hates him because, you know, this stuff is just kooky. I mean, it didn't really make sense in the world. You know, wrestling makes its own rules. It's one reason why I love it. Wrestling exists in its own bubble, its own illusion. You know, uh, it doesn't, uh, regular normal physics don't apply to wrestling. That's why a guy can be passed out for 10 minutes and suddenly wake up. In the real world, when someone's knocked out cold for 10 minutes, you call an ambulance. You don't just point the camera away from them. You know, yes, my, my, <laughs> my favorite example of that is how if you have a, a match where there's no rules, no disqualification match, not only do the rules of wrestling not apply to this match, but the rules of society, the rules of the of <laughs> government, doesn't matter. You can attack somebody with any weapon. You could try to kill them. And it doesn't matter because, hey, this is a no disqualification match, which means you can try to kill somebody in this match. <laughs> well, if it were... If, you know, if it were real, it couldn't possibly exist. Right. You I mean, couldn't that, sanction a match where, oh, yeah, hit the guy with a monkey wrench. Sure. Why not? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know. No, no, no athletic body is going to sanction that. <laughs> when Triple H started the gimmick with the sledgehammer, I was like, how are they going to put this over? You can't, I mean, because you can't actually hit someone with a sledgehammer. They'll die. But if he doesn't, it's not a good gimmick. You know, so how right. are they going to make this make this work? Because it has to be a legit sledgehammer because it's got to make that sound when it hits the ground. It's got to look like it's heavy. It can't be a gimmick sledgehammer doesn't weigh anything it's got to be real but you can't really use it i was just kind of like wow where are they going to go with this and still put it over on the audience before they say hey you know this, this is complete nonsense that's you know this isn't working well he had that way of doing it as we all know now where he he doesn't hold it by the end which is how you really want to use it if you want to oh, yeah. kill somebody he, he holds it and clear off his body right he doesn't hold it by the end of the handle he'll hold it right under the the hammer part where he could really control it so it doesn't really, you know, make or he jab you with the, the right you know, the, the butt end of the handle, or he's kind of holding off on him. It was like a big threat, you know. Uh, right. I mean, I was I mean, I'm just saying that took some like weird, weird finesse to put that over. Because how do you, you know, how do you how do you make that look real and it not be real at the same time? You know, I always said like in my books, wrestling doesn't care what you think. And this is what people who don't like professional wrestling don't understand is that wrestling does not give a fuck what you think. Okay. You know, if you're not a wrestling fan, well, first of all, no one is not a wrestling fan is going to be listening to this show. You can't, I can't even talk to about wrestling to anyone who's not a wrestling fan because they don't get it. You've heard it. It's been said before yes. what Dostoevsky said about faith. If you get it, no explanation is necessary. And if you don't, no explanation will do. Kind of like the Grateful Dead. Like that, you know? Yes. Uh, I'm not trying to bring you into my cult. If you get it, this is awesome. Let's go have a beer and talk about it. And I know, guys, we talk about it all the time and share stuff on, you know, on social media. Like, oh my God, look, you know, here's the night. You know, you know, Bruno lost at Shea Stadium, and here's like this great night, and here's this funny promo that Roddy Piper cut, and you know, and and, and over and over again with Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair, and just all the good, wonderful things. But if you don't get it, you don't get it. You're not into it. Yeah. My wife, and my wife will show up for like the women's match because she likes it when Charlotte Flair shows up in the helicopter too. But she's in for ten minutes, and then it's like a whole another 364 days for the next WrestleMania. But I can probably talk her down, assuming that there's going to be some interesting, you know, women wrestling that she'll think that's cool because you know my wife's pretty cool she gets the spectacle she understands the camp and you know and, and, and the pomp and the wonderfulness of the spectacle but she has no interest in watching actual professional wrestling but one thing that i do like about watching it with someone like that because i'll have that experience with my wife is it gets you out of your own head and it gets you out of the bubble a little bit when you hear the reactions of people that aren't obsessed with it because you'll either get like <laughs> sometimes the ridiculousness of things that you never even really put a lot of thought into or 
or it's interesting to see the things that then they get interested in that you know you might not have thought about like i i remember i watched i don't know if you saw this if you hadn't you would love this but a couple of years ago at wrestlemania when sammy Zayn wrestled um oh uh the guy from jackass what the heck is his name i'm blanking on his oh name. yeah um, johnny uh johnny knoxville johnny knoxville <laughs> And I mean, they were using <laughs> Nashville, Knoxville, you know, I'm going to start my, I'm having a new gimmick. It's called Johnny, Tennessee, but people were, were, um, people were dumping on this match and, you know, it wasn't your it was Meltzer five-star classic. Cool. It was hilarious. There was a of giant mousetrap. There was a giant hand. Loved I, it. Loved it. The look, hand, I, a jackass classic. Right. Really, really funny. And I look, I'm a guy, you know, I'll, I'll watch. Dory Funk versus Jack Briscoe and love it. I'm an old school wrestling guy, but I was on the floor. I mean, on the floor, Lev, especially when the giant hand, because the way they shot it where <clears> you didn't see the hand coming, he just ran into this thing. But what, what I'm saying is I was watching it with my wife and my dad. Now, you know, who kind of watch it when they're around me, but they were into this thing and laughing and loving it more than any match I've ever seen them watch. And, and so like, that's something you miss when you only surround yourself with people who are obsessed wrestling fans is you, you sometimes might not get those fresh perspectives of people that are sitting down and going, wait, what the hell is happening now? Well, what is this? I really did like that match. I thought it was very, Good. very funny. And I thought it was, you know, it fulfilled its own promise. It did what it was supposed to do. It was hilarious. Right. What do you, what else do you, you know? Expect? You can't put Johnny Knoxville over as the world champion. Right. That's, you know, and it's tough working with celebrities, you know, but he's a guy, talk about a guy who can take a bump. He, he, he's a king of taking a bump. Right. That's I what mean, was great about that is you didn't have to pull any punches on him. He could take whatever they wanted to do. Dude, to no him. matter what, dude, that guy's taking bigger bumps than, than, you know, like 90% of people in the business. That's, I mean, that's, how, that's it. That's what his gig right. is. That's and, his gimmick. It fulfilled his purpose. Look, I, I would be, I would get the criticisms if they were doing that in the main event or if they had Roman Reigns doing that. You don't want to have Roman Reigns doing that. But you have it in its place. You have it, it it had its position on the card. You want to have comedy. You want to have craziness, outrageousness. You know, it can't all be this work rate stuff. You know, you know what I mean? How funny was Stone Cold Steve Austin? Yes. Right? You know, I mean, I mean, that's what's strong. I was thinking, I mean, he's, he's a, obviously an amazing worker. He's super talented. He's charismatic. We all love him. He, and and how funny is Vince McMahon? That's that's one of my favorite feuds of all time. Because oh, God, yes. Hilarious. And they both delivered. They both ended up, and Vince ended up being an amazing worker. You know, you can't deny it. He was the, the best. greatest heel of our generation. Yes, I mean, he was. He was amazing. And but Stone Cold is hilarious. The promos they cut were hilarious. The Vince Kiss My Ass Club was hilarious, right? Like, you know, him firing people. Like, it's just like his whole outrage and like he struts out. Like, you know, you know, you know, everything about it was funny. Steve Austin never always catching the beer, never missing is amazing. You know, he drove the, the Zamboni into the ring or the beer, beer truck when he blew up Vince's car with the cement truck mixer. And one of my all time favorite highlights is the bedpan shot when Vince was in the hospital. And actually yes. even better than the bedpan was the defibrillator. That's actually my favorite part. But my favorite part of the whole sequence is when he grabs the defibrillator and right before he shocks Vince, he goes, clear y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I could watch it over and over again. And he hits him with the bedpan and they even have like the Three Stooges sound effect. Oh, it's, 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 it's fantastic. It, it's That's so funny. 
It's so funny. Yes. You know, I loved, you know, when Mae Young gave birth to, I know that split was with the crowd, but I love polarizing when, when my, she yes. was trying to pull her shirt up at all time when she was competing with the, you know, the, you know, the, the divas, you know, and I think they and, even had prosthetic Mola, boobs. Oh God, it was, oh, people were horrified when she finally got up and she had these like latex prosthetic breasts hanging down her waist. Ah! And they, they, you saw it for one second. It was perfect. It was like so funny and so good. And the idea her, oh, and Mae Young lying up in bed with, with her boyfriend, you know, know um mark henry the world's strongest man and that's right he was like, he was like rubbing moisturizer on on her belly because she was pregnant like oh this is gross and he bought her like you know like a gallon of perfume at a truck stop i mean it was so funny yeah. it was so funny and i don't know mark henry was he a good worker i'm not sure i mean he was you know there's this incredibly powerful guy but man he was down down for the gimmick you know he was down for the storyline and they put it over it was really funny yeah, he was an Olympian. I mean, and even look look at Kurt Angle, who again, Olympic gold medalist. And, you know, probably, you know, if they're having real matches, he could he could beat anyone on the roster in about four seconds, but turned out to be one of the funniest people that they had. He's funny, and the I thought the genius of the angle uh you know gimmick was they made him a, a heel. Because usually when you get an Olympic guy, he's babyface. That's, you know, you know he, he would be the Bob Backlund kind of guy. I'm the All-American guy. I won the medal. You know, I'm here representing flag and country. And he's like, no, you know, I am your Olympic hero. And he just, he's this narcissistic, egotistical, you know. You Part know, of that is Vince is, Vince is such so a good. misanthrope. And just has such Vince just has the most cynical view of humanity. I think that he just knew we're going to put you out there and everyone's going to hate you. And I think even Kurt Angle has said that in the beginning, he was like, really, that's what you're going to do. With me? I don't understand. I'm an Olympic. I'm an American hero. And he's like, trust me. People yeah. will hate you. No, that's it. That's how you get heat. You turn an American hero. That is awesome. Well, you know, I mean, Angle's smart enough. I mean, a lot of guys who would come in from the outside don't understand the job of being a heel because they can't stand the idea of being hated when their whole life has been out being loved. You know, I mean, Roddy Piper told me, I mean, they always said, you know, he sold tickets, not Hulk Hogan, you know? I mean, I mean, Hogan's nothing without great heels. I mean, I mean, for all his charisma and whatever else and his complete lack of ability in the ring, I mean, you know, Hogan's nothing without the Iron Sheik, without Roddy Piper, without these heels. I mean, no one goes to see Batman. I go to see the Joker, you know? I don't go to see, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker. I go, to see, I go to see Darth Vader. Yes. You know, that's the guy selling the tickets, you know? And like with any James Bond movie, you know? You know, I want to see the, the, the bad guy. Give me a good bad guy. I am there. No good bad guy, no movie. And I remember even from when we were doing those, those shows with Kevin that, you know, you would always advocate for the heels so much. And again, <laughs> I, you know, I wound up one of the, one of the things I did for, if you remember is from Kevin Geeks out is I did a presentation on the Sheik. I did a presentation about, I like to hurt people, the movie and the things that, you know, the Detroit wrestling scene, which had been an, a subject of interest to me for years, just this weird subculture of wrestling in Detroit that seems to have just become ancient history. And unless you lived there, nobody remembered about it. And I wanted to, you know, write about it, but th those seeds were planted then. And just, you know, you were a part of that, just talking about heels. Cause I, I remember us having lighthearted, gentle arguments at the time, because I grew up in, and I know my name is Brian Solomon, but I grew up in an Italian American family where Bruno San Martino was like Frank Sinatra, Joe DiMaggio, you know, this was like the pantheon of gods, Robert De Niro, you know, 
and and you hated Bruno and you were just shitting all over him and <laughs> you know and Hogan with the Hogan hate I could I could get on board with you with the Bruno hate it was like a, you know sacrilege I was bristling at at your uh, opinions of the uh, American the Italian American icon Bruno San Martino. Yeah, well, it's because, you know, I'm, I'm all for Ox Baker and Stan Stasiak and Stan Hansen, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, because the heels have more charisma. They don't, they, you know, they, they're they not worried about what anybody thinks. They, you know, also beyond, you know, they always have more charisma. They're always more free-minded, um, you know? And, you know, speaking of heels, you know, I wrote something uh, uh, about Donald Trump, you know, and I, I hope you uh, got to see this, Brian. I um, did, and, you know, when I post this the art too. Of the art of the heel. Right, yeah. and it was for um, the what was the magazine? The Baffler. The Baffler, very high-minded magazine, it used to be the MIT Literary Magazine. Yes. Where- broke off and became independent i mean it's, it's pretty pretty fancy schmancy and an editor called me and said you need to write this thing about donald trump and wrestling because you're the guy who understands this who can put this into context who's got the the resume to be legit you know i did read it yes. you know and the problem with donald trump is he's a natural born heel but he wants to be loved by everyone that's the <laughs> existential problem i mean there are a lot more problems than that but let's face it the guy's a heel he's he's a he's a he's a he's a thug he's a he runs a crime racket he's a money launderer and a racist and a white supremacist premise right a misogynist you know he's the he's a pussy grabbing awful he's just the worst of the worst but he wants to be loved by everyone you know he's upset because the nfl didn't embrace him or the you know or he didn't get invited to the right parties he wants to be loved but he's a natural heel and he's not smart enough to follow that instinct in his but own isn't circle. that what how now, wrestling heels act though they want well, you now, to love I mean, them with donald trump is he's finding a bunch of people who are also heels you know in, in their real life but it's weird right because that is the job of heels to get heat you know, and some people don't want to do it because they don't get it. And in my life, when in my radio show or or anything, no one wants to be that guy because they're afraid people are going to take it seriously. You know, they're going to bleed into the real life. I love being the heavy. You know, I think it's exciting. I think it's more charismatic. It's much more interesting to be a heel than to be a face. You know, in whatever it is I do, because it's a very performative aspect to my life. Um, listen, you know. I'm a very nice guy. You know, I, I'm not really. I don't know how to say. I'm not going to hold you up in real life, but um. You know, I, I don't have to. I, I earnest isn't something I really do well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's more fun to push the buttons. I think the people that can embrace that are the ones that become the best at it. Like I had as a guest, it hasn't posted yet, but by the time this runs, it will. I had as a guest on the show the daughter of Bobby the Brain Heenan, and I talked to her about the fact, you know, her dad was in real life one of the nicest, sweetest, generous, most kind. In fact, he would hold grudges against other wrestlers, not because of any personal slight, but because he found them to lack character as human beings. He just he just didn't have respect for them. There were certain people like the Valiants and Dick the Bruiser that he had personal issues with because he didn't think they were good people. But he, but that's how good of a guy he was. And she said to me, he loved, because I said, how would this guy, you know, this is a, such a sweet man. How did he feel about the fact that everybody wanted him dead? People loved seeing pictures of him covered in blood. And she said he loved it. He loved every second of it. That's why of he was course. so good at it. Of course, it's so much fun, you know. God, it would be awful having to play the baby face. You know, and having to be careful of everything you say because you want to be popular with everyone all the time. Also, you know, I figure yeah, if I'm not pissing somebody off, I'm just not trying hard enough at some point, you know. Yeah, and I mean, look, also, traditionally, the heels have to carry the load. I mean, they make the storylines interesting. They make the angles interesting. They're the Batman, James Bond, Star Wars, and on and on. (laughs) And I don't know how you, I don't remember what your opinions were of Dusty Rhodes, but I will say that I think he was the first babyface to actually be 
colorful. I mean, before him, the the baby faces had to be like, I'm just a regular guy. I'm just going to do my best 110%. And he was the first baby face where it's like, oh, wow, this guy, this guy is just as exciting and colorful and interesting as the, as the bad guys that he's wrestling. Right. Well, Dusty, I mean, he had the mic skills. Well, now you got me thinking how much Hulk Hogan took from Dusty Rhodes on the mic. A you lot. Know, <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, he took from everybody. Obviously. And superstar Billy Graham, who Dusty well, that, Rhodes that, also that, took. I mean, you know, everybody got from superstar Billy yes. Graham. You know, the same way everybody stole from Jimi Hendrix, who came after him, you know, if he played the guitar, you know. Uh, I hadn't really put, but yeah, uh, you know, even, I mean, yeah, I mean, Dusty Rhodes is amazing on the mic. I mean, you know, the American dream, these are hard times. You know, oh my God, these were, you know, but he knew how to play well with Ric Flair. He knew how to, how to, how to do it. And also he could take a bump. He, he juiced like a, like, like, like a stuck pig. I mean, it was crazy. When you would see Dusty Rhodes, you were getting your money's worth. There's no question about it. You know, what he did in the ring, as dumb as that elbow was, you know, everything else, you know, it was like pretty, pretty brutal, you know, you know, um, yeah. And yeah. Hogan, Hogan had the leg drop, devastating finisher, the leg Worst drop. in the history of wrestling, you know? Um, I wanted to circle back because we we're talking about Andy Kaufman, you know? We're yes. Talking, okay, because I was putting it forth. It was based on a a, a story uh, I, I'd written about Andy Kaufman, you know, putting forth that he was the greatest wrestler of all time, which, um, take it or leave it or read the story. Uh, it's up on my website, uh, if you don't mind, mikeedison.com. You can find my long story about Andy Kaufman. And the whole thing is, when he did that, storyline with jerry lawler okay even people in the business w- w- didn't were marking for it you know yeah. they didn't get it they thought when they thought when jerry lawler broke his neck they thought it was a shoot and when he went on letterman they were calling up and said you know you know they broke his neck like thanks for putting that little jew in his place and people in the business were fooled they didn't know whether it was what was going on how great is that he blurred yes. the line so far so far that the people the very people who are supposed to know other bookers other promoters didn't get it well, Jerry Jarrett had the story, and he told it on the Tales from the Territory show, but he's told it before, the late now Jerry Jarrett. He told the story about how Bill Watts called him up. You know, Bill Watts was the Mid-South promoter. Jerry Jarrett was the Memphis promoter. And he said to him something like, you know, good for you. Congratulations for putting that loud mouth piece of shit in his place, that yep. Hollywood, you know, big mouth, putting him in his place. And and on Mid-South TV at the time. They play. He played the clip. I don't know if you ever saw this. He played the clip from Memphis on Mid South TV, and he gave this whole, very sober, serious editorial. Like this is what happens when a Hollywood outsider thinks that they understand what we do, and blah blah blah. And you could look at that and go, okay, he doesn't really believe that. He's playing that part. But there's proof. He called Jerry Jarrett and said this to Jerry Jarrett. I know. I know. And it's amazing because, you know, now we're all such smart marks and this and that. And, you know, oh, it's a work shoot and it's a double reverse, double work shoot or, or, you know, know, all these like different angles that you think you're being put on. And no one saw that it was a put on like, you know, and, you know, of course, the bit on David Letterman where they don't even tell Letterman what's about to happen. And it's in Billboard and Variety the next day and all these places like what just happened? And, you know, and, you know, and Lawler doesn't break kayfabe until long after Andy Kaufman dies. Yeah, there's a moment. Fantastic. In the, it's it, fantastic. It, they don't they didn't fully do it until the Man on the Moon movie. There's a scene in the movie which was meant to be because, as we know, Jerry Lawler played himself in the movie. There's a scene in the movie where it's meant to be. This is the moment where we reveal the secret. Finally, where they have them working together in a room, sitting down and talking and that scene in the movie was meant to be the breaking of the silence after whatever it was at that point, 15, 20 years. 
Amazing. So I, you know, Andy Lawler was he weighing like ninety eight pounds, soaking wet. You know, I mean, I'm not, no one's gonna confuse him with Bruiser Brody. But the point is, he got more heat than anyone. You know, and even in in the in the territories work, it was regional. Uh, you know, the wrestling women gimmick. I mean, oh, how despicable! That's a real heel move, right? I mean, hitting a woman is like the most heel thing you can do. And he guy made a living at it. And he gets down there, and he that that promo about the soap and the rednecks and Jerry. It was the whole thing. Like he bent wrestling in double in on itself you know if you know if your job you know there's always that story like when they said to hogan who's the best worker and he says i am because i draw the most mm -hmm. right you know that's who's the best worker andy kaufman i know okay wasn't on the big stage that hulk hogan was on but he did get on national tv and maybe became a national story okay right. he put wrestling over in a way that no one else had and to me that okay does it make him a better wrestler than rick flair not in that sense of course not but yeah but yeah, you know, when, you know, in terms yeah. of, of working, it, you know, he put yes. it over, he got more heat than anybody. Yeah. And he loved it. And I mean, he committed he to saw it. Whole the possibilities hog. of it. He committed. People don't even understand that too. When he left, you know, this career, he would have been on Saturday Night Live and Taxi, of course, such a big show. He left a lot of things behind to go to Memphis, you know, yeah. and he didn't go there for two weeks to work this gimmick. He went through like two years. He was a worker. They put on shows yeah. what, every week in Memphis. He was know? barnstorming. He was like going to all the little towns and he, things. He it wasn't really even... became a professional wrestler in every sense of it. You yeah. Know? He worked every night of the week. They did all those gigs. They did all those shows. And people you know? didn't, people around them didn't always get it. Like I know, I remember, I don't know, I forget where I saw this, but there was a, I think it was maybe around the time Man on the Moon came out where somebody approached um, Judd Hirsch. If I, I, I may be totally getting this wrong, you know, who was on taxi mm -hmm. with Andy Kaufman at that time. Somebody approached him at a, at a, on a red carpet or something and said something like about, you know, what did you think about when Andy was doing this wrestling and him and they were, it might've even been a couple of other people there with him, Tony Danza or whoever, it was some taxi thing. And they, their response was very, they were just sort of, and they meant it. They were like, you know, we don't really like to talk about that. That was just, we didn't like to see him like that. And we thought we didn't understand it then. We don't understand it now. Like they were very dismissive and they said, you know, he really, he really did himself no favors. And that was a really, that made us very sad at the time that he was doing that. And I think they meant it. They do, and it goes back to what we're saying. If you don't get professional wrestling, no explanation will do. And here's a guy who loved it and understood it. And, you know, it wasn't just a mark. I mean, he was a professional. He was a, you know, famous, famous television star, you know? And to come out and commit your career to that, because there's a part in Man of the Moon I really love, and it's when he's doing the Tony Clifton gimmick, right? And uh, with, with his buddy. Um, and Tony Clifton comes out and does the show, and it's uh, Bob uh, Lamuda. Lamuda, Bob Lamuda is coming out and does the show, but everybody thinks it's Andy Kaufman, right? That's that's the stunt we're pulling, right? And there, it's in Las Vegas, and the show's going over, and it's and it goes over, it's got the great applause, and then Andy Kaufman walks out and says, "Thanks, Tony, that was great." At which point, the crowd completely turns on him, right, and feels they've been they've been had they they paid all this money to not see Andy Kaufman, and they're sitting in the office with Danny DeVito, who's his manager, and him he's there with uh, Lamuda, and he's like, "You guys." You know, cost so much money and so much trouble for a joke, and you two are the only assholes who think it's funny, right? And there's a this kind of pregnant pause, and then Andy Kaufman says, "Yeah, but it's really funny," <laughs> and that's it. It's a it's this firm sense of knowing what's funny and belief in yourself as a performer, as a comedian, uh, as a worker, as whatever it is. That's the Andy Kaufman thing. He believed in it and he knew it. And man, he got so much heat that they didn't know what to do with it. Judd, like, because why would a normal person? you know, give up a promising career as a TV star 
to be a wrestler. I mean, what if he quit and said, I'm going to be a painter instead? But because it's just one art is the same as any other art, right? At some level. Hey, any... I'm tired of being on TV. I want to become an abstract expressionist painter. And like, yeah, that was really sad. He threw his life away. But man, he followed it. He followed his heart. You know, he followed his music. And, and it was absolutely fantastic. And if you look at the tapes, they prove it. And all, you know, you know, if they didn't get it. What's not to get? He filled up, you know, the, the arena on a Saturday night. Every Saturday night, there was not not an empty seat because they paid money to see Andy Kaufman get his ass kicked by Jerry Lawler. Yeah, and he apparently the story was that he never cashed a check. That all the checks, were, you know, that were written for, to him by Jarrett for wrestling, he never even bothered to cash. I'm sure he was, you know, he was making plenty of money from the other stuff. Didn't need it, but whatever the case may be, he didn't even want to be paid for it. It was just a pure labor of love and the craziest part is too as you probably know he originally wanted to do it in the wwf right. he, he oh, first right. approached vince mcmahon senior and got turned away right. well vince senior never would have seen it you know no no, no. i think uh, vince jr would have done it in a second you know it's a weird thing it's the, the weird place where art meets wrestling that's a very very strange place to be you know um because you know as anyone i mean the real definition of a mark is someone who thinks there's something going on here besides selling tickets. Yes. You know? Thank you, Mike. Thank you. You know, you know reminder to everyone, that's what's going on here. If you think there's something going art is nice, but someone's got to pay for it. And it's nice when we see these insane things, these, you know, this amazing Piper's pit where he's playing with kayfabe and breaking down the wall, or, you know, these insane mankind storylines or Undertaker storylines, these promo videos, or or when, <laughs> when Gold Dust, remember those promo films are like avant-garde films? <laughs> oh my God, it was yes. so great. But if they're not selling tickets, they disappear very quickly. You know, it's that nice place where you get to be creative and do things that are outrageous and things that you can't. Little Mae Young has a baby on TV. I think everyone was kind of, and I like that because that storyline died right there. She was mm -hmm. never brought up again. You know, it was like, ah, you know, she gave birth to like this gelatinous hand, you know, after like farting on the table, smoking a cigar, drinking a beer. And it was never brought up again. You know, brilliant. Right. It you served know? its purpose. They brought everybody along with it. And that's part of the genius of wrestling, too, because if someone's not going over as a heel, you turn them into a face and vice versa. You can do it on a dime, 180 degrees. You know, it, it it's weird. You know, wrestling's very responsive to its audience in ways other art forms, you know, other uh, entertainment, you know, is not because it can be very responsive in real time. You know, if something's not going over on Friday, you could change it on Saturday. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy like that. Um, I think Andy Kaufman had an innate understanding of the business. This weird, you know, you know, it might have been existential and it might have been, you know, somewhere some highly intellectualized. When it came down to it, he showed up. He took the bumps. He took the heat. You know, and if he didn't cash the checks and it wasn't for money, so that makes it puts it into a very weird place because it's contrary to everything we know about the business. Like what you were saying too earlier about like, hey, I'm doing a book about the Sheik, and they're like, great, because everyone's been taught to hustle. That's what everyone's been taught to. All the workers, they're all hustlers. Everyone's been taught that this is a money grab. That's what wrestling is. You know, and it's, I mean, at its heart of hearts, it's not only just cynical, but everyone's been taught that. To be no, yeah, no, absolutely. Everyone's been on the hustle at all times, you know? Um, that is, that is what it is. It, it's, it's, it's art, like you say, but it's commercial art. I mean, there's lots of forms of art that are very commercial. I mean, that's what it is. I think, you know, it's one thing to look at it that way. I think, uh, you don't, you know, the, the thing that they always got right in the old days was they made sure that they weren't telling you that, you know, you know what I mean? Like they allowed you to suspend your disbelief. You know, I, I get a little it 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 kind of ruffles my feathers when you see wrestlers 
I know kayfabe's dead, whatever, but when they yeah. pub they publicly describe what they do as art or I'm a performance artist on this, on that, it comes off as a little pretentious, but it also destroys that illusion. And it's not saying I disagree. I, I agree. I agree. But part of the beauty and the illusion of wrestling is that you're pretending it's something that it's not. You know, I agree. I'm really not. I mean, listen, the, the post kayfabe era. I mean, we're bound to get here at some point. I love all these like, you know, people that are so smart, like these comments on Facebook. Well, if I had booked it or like, you know, but you didn't, did you stand? Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody thinks they, they, they know better. It's so weird, but I don't like it. Yeah. When, 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 when workers and people in the industry say, this is how it happened. This was the meeting. It is, it's just a little too much. And I do think it does crush the mystique of, of the sport, the entertainment, uh, you know, the whole thing. I believe like magicians don't tell their secrets. Listen, if you really want to know how to saw a lady in half, go on YouTube. You can find out. You want to know how David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear? You, you can look it up. It's there because somebody, you know, told tales out of school and you can look it up. But it's not for your colleagues or for you to say that. You know, I think that's a code. It's a code of honor. It's, uh, you know, I think because there should be a mystique to professional wrestling. Um, Absolutely. The, the magic. It's too quickly. The magic is always the best comparison that people use. And I love that comparison because it's the idea that, you know, with professional magicians, people, even the people watching it and who love it and enjoy it, the vast majority, those people understand that this is a trick. They do not believe that this person is an actual sorcerer with arcane <laughs> powers. They understand it's a trick. They don't know how it's done. They don't really want to know. Maybe a small percentage do. They're in on it, but they love it, and they get in, they get pulled in by the spectacle. I think it's the same with wrestling. It's like a large, even in the old days, a large significant portion of that fan base they knew this was not a competitive sport. I'm watching. They understood that when you how whip somebody, when you whip wrestling. someone into the ropes, they're and not going to come running fake. back to you. You know, I knew it was fake when I was eight years old. This is like I wrote right. it's like a huge part of both my books. You are a complete disappointment. When my father yelling at me when I'm an eight year old, you're stupid. This is dumb. It's fake. How could you watch something that's fake? I'm like, yeah, but it, you're, you're missing the point because you have to ask if it's fake or not. You're missing the point entirely you know what's fake jedi knights of the dark star also you know again it's you're asking the wrong question i listen i'd like to know how magic tricks are done i'm fascinated by magic i want to know how a lady gets sawed in half but while i'm watching it i choose to be uh mesmerized and mystified and entertained i'm not in the moment looking you know around to see if there's a mirror or a trap door in the moment because that would right. ruin the whole thing it's you know? the it's I rubbing people's to it Right. I give myself into it and I accept it and become part of it. And then I can get excited and root for somebody and be enthusiastic and follow the storyline because great wrestlers tell a story. We all know that every match is supposed to tell a story and bring the crowd with it. Um, I want to be that crowd. Otherwise, what am I watching it for? It's no fun. Yeah. It's, you know, you, you don't want to rub apart. We're like, this is stupid. Dinosaurs don't walk and talk or, you know, or like, you know, this, this can't possibly happen. This isn't real. You know, I'd right. be going saying that all day long. I'd have nothing left. <laughs> hey, you, you don't want to hit people over the head with it because then that takes away the enjoyment. People want to believe they want to go along with it. You know, it's why I, I also sympathize with the opinions of sometimes, you know, the, the, the old timers will get really upset when they see modern day wrestlers breaking kayfabe all the time, because it's like, you know, if, if you did that back then, way back in the in in the pre, you know, the kayfabe days, the pre Hulkamania and all that stuff, if you did that back then, it's not like you were necessarily telling people things that they didn't know, but you were getting into such a level of detail that you could very well hurt business and people's livelihoods. And people will go, well, why am I 
bothering with this shit if it's just they're making me feel embarrassed for liking it so i'm not even going to bother watching anymore like i understand that that criticism that that sometimes they have I, about I it i agree with it i enjoy that those rules not mistake i you know i really love like the, the the code of a mexican wrestler when you see you know they're out to dinner with their family and they're wearing the mask you <laughs> yes, know they're on the yes. beach having a vacation with their family and have a mask on i talked to i talked to the son of uh, the Destroyer, Dick Byer, this, uh, his son, Kurt Byer, and the Destroyer wore his mask everywhere in public. And he would say that, you know, there would be times where if he was going somewhere where he knew nobody was a wrestling fan, you know, nobody knew what he looked like. Yeah, of course, he would go without the mask, but nobody would know it was him. But he said anytime he was in public as the Destroyer or anywhere where there would be wrestling fans, and blah, he had that mask on nonstop Those for are- his entire professional life. I love I love those photographs. Like, oh, the guy's going to the bank to like cash a check. He's got his yeah. mask on. Yeah, you know, he's going to the hardware store. He got a key made. He's got his mask on. You know, he was going to a PTA meeting. You know, he's got the mask on. I love that. To me, that adds the mystique. I mean, that's just that's just cool. That's yeah. just cool. It's belief in something and maintaining the code. You know, you know, having that code and not breaking it, which is part of the Andy Kaufman thing. You know, it's great. I mean, my God, he couldn't have gone out in public in Memphis after being on TV. You know, like calling out like you know, you know, rednecks and women the way he did. No way could he go on out in public. He get he get murdered if he went to the Waffle House. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike, you you've taken me 120 miles an hour here, as I I had hoped that you would, and I. I hope that I have kept up with you oh, as 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 good as I can. I think my gifts as a fast talking, born and bred Brooklyn New Yorker has helped me out in this hour. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I, yeah, I know. I, uh, <laughs> I I kind of start in fifth gear and kind of keep it there. But this is one of my favorite topics, obviously. Yes, and, thank and you. And it's an opportunity. You know, you said I'm enthusiastic about classical music and wrestling, and I, and I am a classical music fan. But really, what what you're referring to is when. Um, and I, I mean, I'm also a huge rock and roll fan. I mean, that's kind of, you know, as I came up, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm just as enthusiastic about Little Richard and the Ramones as I am about Beethoven. Um, but I do, do like classical music. But the New York Press, the old New York Arts Weekly, uh, that you know, was kind of like the Village Voice, for those who don't remember it, um, they wanted me to write for them. This is after my first book came out. And, I, and I'd written for them years earlier. And they said, you got to come back. You got to come back. I want you to write. You know, I was kind of getting some notoriety for my book. I have fun everywhere I go. And I said, okay, but I'm only going to write about professional wrestling and classical music. That's why they, <laughs> they said yes, you know, which I couldn't believe. And the wrestling is because I wanted to write about it, but no one would let me because no one's interested in it. And I could talk about it in terms of like this existential kind of thing, you know, um, not just, you know, reporting on SummerSlam, you know, or, or second guessing the booking the way the guy in the New York Post does now. I mean, I find that completely useless and boring. And boy, what a mark, right? Um, mm-hmm. But to talk about it in these other weird ways of doing and also to promote some local shows and the classical music, the main reason was to get tickets. That's it, because it's really expensive to go to the symphony. And if I learned one thing in journalism in, in college, when I worked for the paper, is you get free shit. You know, if you review something, you get tickets to it where you do the preview for it. So I started getting tickets for the symphony. I mean, they pay me 75 bucks to write this little thing because Mahler was, you know, they were, you know, someone's coming to town to do a Mahler cycle or something, you know, which and they liked it because I'd write it sort of about Mahler, but I ended up like kind of writing about Roger Waters' dystopian vision instead because whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> why not? Why not? Yeah, they liked it because it was like all about rock and roll, even though it was supposed to be about classical music. But mainly I got tickets. And that's why I started writing about classical music because, you know, you got 
spent a hundred bucks or whatever for the story, but I'd end up with four hundred dollars worth of tickets. It's expensive to go see the symphony, you know. And they liked it because I was doing this stuff, and they were like, "Yeah, whatever you want." So all of a sudden, I was like drowning in tickets to see the symphony and, and the opera. You know, like thousands of dollars worth of tickets, and I loved it going to Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall. I couldn't afford it otherwise. So that's yeah. that was the hustle. That was my gimmick that's amazing i gotta try that i gotta think I, I i don't know why i hadn't thought of that although i did i did get a lot of swag when i when i worked for wwe magazine mm-hmm. and we decided that we were hey let's do a let's think outside the box we'll do a column where we review stuff uh you know that's not related to wrestling why not and all it was was a way that i could get dvds and cds right. and blu-rays and things and i i have you know i i have season one and two of Star Trek and season one of Deadwood. And I can, I can thank the, uh, my review column in WWE yeah. magazine well, for that. The other side of that, here I am going to be cynical, Brian, and say like, like also learn quickly that swag isn't all that good because when I started, you know, reviewing a record for, you know, the school newspaper uh, record. And the first time that happened, that was great. You know, and they realized, well, the record cost like $7, which is a fuck. Right. And then, they, but then I started going with the concerts and that was good. And I started being able to get into clubs and that was bad. was much better. Cause that, if I used that privilege and didn't overuse it, it that got into, you know, some coin would to go see a lot of shows, but generally I don't want a t-shirt, you know, and I don't want, want a DVD, but when you start talking about giving me like a thousand dollars worth of tickets to sit, you know, in the first row of Carnegie Hall, so it's different, you know? Or, well, that's why oh, you were, you were much better at it than I was. See, that's put buying me plane tickets. That's a good one. That's what I would have You know, Put me, put me on a plane, buy me a $9,000 dinner. Let me taste like a, see what a, you know, 40,000 bottle of wine tastes like so I can write about it. That's, that's, some, that's a good hustle. And you also, if I remember correctly, and this will be, I, we're, we're off on a tangent here, but why not? If I remember right, I think you do something that I also do when I write, which is that you have classical music playing while you write, right? I, I remember. Yes. Yeah, I do the same thing. And so, you know, for people... Next time you're reading one of my books, when you're reading Blood and Fire about the Sheik or or my, you know, this next Gorilla Monsoon book that I'm doing, just know that I was listening to Chopin and Tchaikovsky and, and Debussy when, when I was writing those. those I books. always both. Wait, 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 this is, um, you can't, I mean, for the viewers at home, but my piano is right there. It usually sits right on top of my piano. Oh, <laughs> it's a picture of Liberace and the Sheik, which, by the way, is it sits the on only, top of my piano, this photo. This is like. <laughs> it's the only known photo of the Sheik smiling. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know that. Yes. But, um, yeah, no, no, it's good, right? Yes, that's fantastic. Right wow. That's beautiful. You know, the world's biggest baby face with the world's greatest heel. <laughs> perfect inspiration. Well, it's everything to me. That's it. Well, we'll talk about Liberace and boy and uh, gorgeous George. <laughs> I almost said boy George. Yes, we'll, we'll have to do that. <laughs> and by the way, that. in my book, I put Liberace and the Sheik in the same category. I don't know if you saw that part of the people that lived their gimmicks so strongly that you could never even tell who the real person was anymore. They're, they're, they're birds of a feather. I love it. And I, I tell you what, every single book that I've ever written, including the ghostwriting things, there's a reference to Liberace at some point in the book. Okay, I've written books about Italian wine, ghostwriting things, and at some point there's a reference to Liberace in it. It's wow. just sort of my tag. Every, yeah, you can it. never have enough Liberace. No, I <sighs> agree. I agree. He's, you know, that's, that's a gimmick I, you know. Well, Mike, thank you so much. This has been, uh, you've been generous with your time and we've Get probably, guess, we've squeezed three hours into one and that's fantastic. So hey. Thank you so much for doing this. Always try to add value, right? Try to get a dime bag into a nickel bag. That's the innocent way. All right. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Take care. Good to see you. All right. Take care. Great. Excellent job on the Sheik book too. Thank you. Later. All right. 
There you have it, folks. My breakneck conversation with Mike Edison, the man who took me on a roller coaster of emotion and excitement and dialogue. And I enjoyed every moment of it. And I hope that you did too. Now, while I have you here, I want to remind you to keep listening to this show because we always have great guests lined up. Future episodes of Shut Up and Wrestle will include such guests as historian Carl Stern, Kenny McIntosh, the man behind the Inside the Ropes event and magazine franchise. He will be here, as well as Megan Baker Kelly, daughter of the one and only Ox Baker. So keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle for all those upcoming interviews and more, I promise you. That's the place to find it. Our website is suawpod.com. You can also find the podcast and subscribe to it at Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Podbean, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. While you're at it, check out the wrestling news every morning for your daily news update on the world of professional wrestling from Arcadian Vanguard. Find it at thewrestlingnews.com. You'll also find it on the YouTube page for Arcadian Vanguard, and you can check it out there with the really cool graphics that we design for it every single day. It's a great place to go. My book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, is available not only in stores, as I've been saying, but also I have a limited number of my own copies that I will sign, and I also have copies of my newest book, Superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro, signed copies of those books, which I am selling. If you are interested in purchasing a signed copy, reach out to me. You can find me at my email address, Solomon at yahoo.com, as well as Twitter and Instagram, you can get me at Brian R. Solomon. Or you know what? Find me on Facebook. I'm all over the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, which, by the way, you should join if you haven't already. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Go to the Facebook group. You'll find me there if you're interested in purchasing a signed copy of Blood and Fire or of Superheroes. Or even if you're not interested, just join the Facebook group. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. You can get it in print and digital form at pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes Magazine, you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, as I've said, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. I can be found on Facebook as well. In addition to the Facebook group, my author page on Facebook is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that in space, no one can hear you scream. So long, wrestling fans.